the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our family pastor, J.C. Thompson, starts a quick two-week series on the book of Titus. If you want to watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can do all of that and more on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. No, it's a good time to be reminded of who and where you should turn your eyes. If your eyes are anywhere but Jesus, you will have trouble. Well, Happy New Year. Year. Hope everyone's doing very well. Uh, My name is J.C. Thompson. I'm the family pastor here, and I'm excited to lead us in a a small, short, two-week series entitled Devoted. Uh, I I wanted to share this particular series with you for for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's the new year, and oftentimes we we try and focus on who we are, what what our lives look like. We, We reflect on the past year. We look forward to the new year. And not only that, but this letter, the the series that we're doing will be focused on the book of Titus. This letter, this word devoted, is used several times by Paul, the author. We're all devoted to something, all of us. Now, oftentimes, if you don't know what you may be devoted to, or maybe you're misled into what you may be devoted to, it's pretty easy to figure out what that devotion is, where you place it. Generally, you might have made a New Year's resolution about it. You could have been thinking through how your life would only improve if you did this. It could be about the amount of money that you have or make. It could be about your physical appearance, possibly your health. It could be about some thing in which you feel prestige is held, be it a job, a career, a title. It could be about some particular relationship, and there's many, many other things. You could also easily discover where your devotion might be by responding to someone's question about that very thing with this answer. Well, yeah, but, well, well, yeah, but excusing where your devotion may be misplaced. Oftentimes, those things happen in uh, a football team. They happen in some hobby that you may be spending too much time with. Oftentimes, where we place our, our calendar or our checkbook, when we make an excuse, that's generally a, a good sign that our devotion may be placed in that particular thing. You also, might can ask yourself the question, what do I feel the most proud of? When I think of this accomplishment or this thing that I own, this is what fills me with the most pride. You could also frame it in this way. If I were to lose this, my life would be immeasurably worse. See, our devotion is placed 
in something. The challenge comes in our life when we are devoted to the wrong things. And so if you turn with me to the book of Titus, we'll be in chapter 3 today. Paul wrote this letter to Titus. Titus was a young pastor, one of Paul's protégés. And so the entire letter is filled with advice from an older man to a younger man who's taking on the pastorate. Obviously, that's something that interests me. I'm very excited to be a pastor. I love the call that God has placed on my life. And so the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are especially intriguing to me as someone who's trying to place their life and efforts in the right places as a pastor. But as a follower of Christ, it's also important for you to know where you should place your focus and efforts and where Paul is commending Titus as the pastor to place his focus. See, Titus was a pastor in a place called Cyrene. And as a pastor in Cyrene, he had a very unique challenge. See, not only was Titus dealing with the folks in Cyrene who were Gentiles, who were known even by their own crowd, as you see in the book of Titus, as liars. Uh, All Cretans are liars. You may have heard that quote before as Paul was quoting an actual Crete who was saying that about himself. In fact, that's a paradox you would learn about in logic or philosophy as he himself was a Cretan saying all Cretans are liars, therefore makes him a liar, and thus his statement is a lie, logically. Uh, again, very funny. Uh, but the idea is this, that he, Titus is placed in this place where they were known for their worldly pursuits and pleasures, and they were pagans in every sense of the word. But not only that, but there was also a group, and we've heard about this group in the last year. There was a group of people who were called the circumcision party, and they were trying to get people to live a a lifestyle based on legalism and gaining authority through convincing people that if they got circumcised, then they could truly pursue Christ and have everything needed. If they added to Christ circumcision, then they would be complete. And so you've got Titus who was in a place of people who struggled with license to do whatever they felt was right and also legalism that what I do, quote unquote, for God makes me right with God. God. And I think that that challenge exists today as well, where people would tell you, well, you've got to do more for Christ, or they tell you that God's grace covers everything, do whatever you please. And so I think this letter is especially useful for us today. One interesting thing about the book of Titus is there is no doctrinal debate. And what I mean by that is not to say that there's not plenty of teaching and doctrine about who Christ is and and our role as people and citizens, but Paul is not trying to deal with an enemy in the church. It's unique because Paul is giving encouragement and advice without having to deal with hey, there's this big thing going on that I have to help you with intentionally, which means this is the best place for us to look at and go, what should we be focusing on in the church if everything is okay? And by that, I mean there's no huge issue. What should we be doing? What should we be devoted to? 
Now, there's plenty of things in Titus. There's ethical imperatives for how we should live our life. In fact, there's specific insight for roles that we have, be it as a younger man or an older man, even as an employee, as a parent, as a man or a woman. Each of us has plenty of things that we can gain from reading through this letter. But in our world, in the world of smartphones and social media and answers at our fingertips, we are overloaded and we need focus. And Titus gives us two focuses that we'll be looking at over the next two weeks. Today, we will be looking at our devotion to God. And next week, we will look at how we should be devoted to good works. And we'll see this focus in our theme verse for this series. It comes from Titus chapter 3, verse 8. You can see it at the top of your outline, and it just says this. This is a trustworthy saying, which is Paul saying, hey, listen to me. What I'm about to tell you is real good. You're going to want to listen, and it's true. And he says this, I want you, Titus, to insist on these teachings. Now, that means we're going to have to figure out what teachings is he talking about. He's summing something up for us. But when Titus insists on these teachings, Paul says, you do this so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. See, Paul understands we, followers of Christ, the body of Christ, were placed in the time and in the place that we are in for a purpose. And when we devote ourselves to the teachings that we'll learn about today, then we will do good things. And as we know, Scripture teaches us, those good things are a way in which the unbelieving world can look at our Savior and be encouraged and inspired and motivated to ask questions about who he really is. So today, we're going to learn how we can grow in our devotion to God. I can grow in my devotion to God by remembering my past. Remembering my past. Now, before I get too far into this, I want to just say, this is a, this is a difficult thing to teach because... You hear two things from the church. You hear, remember who you were before Christ, and you also hear, forget your past. And so, when I'm encouraging us to remember our past, what does that mean? Well, let's talk about who all of our past really is in verse 3 of chapter 3. Paul just says this, once we, meaning all of us who are followers of Christ, no one is Excluded, all of us are included. Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like plenty to forget about. Many of you read that. And specific things come to your mind about what you've done in your past. Paul is not mincing words here. Foolish, 
disobedient, slaves to lust and pleasure, full of evil and envy. Does this language describe you before you met Christ? Maybe for some of you in here, you go, well, maybe, kind of. Maybe you don't want to lean too far into the truth that Paul is presenting here. But I can assure you, from my own personal experience, and also from the complete and utter truth of God's Word, it's true. This is who we were before Christ. And when we forget that, we may place pride in who we are today rather than remembering truly what Christ has done in us. So it is, it's, it's a challenge to not only forget, not only place what is behind in its rightful place behind you, but also remember that that was utterly true for you. And it's true for me. We must not move past the fact that Christ has changed us. And he changed us when we were his enemy. And I say remember your past because from the beginning... When God was giving the law to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he made sure to encourage the Israelites to remember. To remember. And you will see throughout Scripture, throughout its history, Israel being reminded to remember. And so I remind all of us today, including myself, to remember who we were before Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 7. Repeat them again and again. And if we're going to the Hebrew language, and again, and again, and again to your children. And I want to stop right here. Have you shared with your family who you were before Christ. Do you help them remember for you what God has done in your life and in your family's life because of how he's changed you? Well, how do you do that? How do you help remember? How do you help your children understand the truth of who God is? Well, we, we hear right after that, talk about them when you're at home. Talk about them when you're on the road. Now, he probably didn't mean a car, but we have those. We can talk about that in the car. When you're going to bed and when you're getting up. In other words, every part of your day, you can find a way to remind your children of how good God has been to you. I know for me, some simple ways to do that are to pray before I eat, reminding my children that we have food because God has provided food. When he placed human beings down here, he gave us things to eat and fill ourselves. We didn't come up with that. And it tastes good. It's not just bran all the time. It is deliciousness, and I enjoy it. 
And so we can remind our children that God has provided not only what we need, but also what we can enjoy because he loves us. When we go to bed, we can remind our children that even though we go to sleep, God continues to work. That when we get up, God has prepared for us this day and the things to accomplish. That when we meet people, we can remind our children that we didn't randomly run into that person in the store, but God placed that person in front of us. And what did God desire for us to do in that conversation and in that time? Help your children remember. Write them at your house. Place them on the doorpost and put them on your gates. In other words, Make it clear to your children what God has done in your life. See, Paul always seems to remind readers, no matter what letter you read, that before Christ we were enemies of the gospel. And almost as much as he talks about everyone who's a follower of Christ being an enemy of the gospel, he also talks about himself being the worst enemy of the gospel. See, Paul remembers who he was before Christ. Here's another example of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 11. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusives or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy you are made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Ephesians chapter 2, he reminds the Gentiles that they used to be called outsiders because they were. And then God broke through what he had always planned to do and made salvation available to all, everyone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says this, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected not only their bodies or only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. That was us. Before Christ, we were outsiders. We were separated from God. We were separated from Jesus Christ. We were separated from the Holy Spirit. We had no future after death. We had no family of God, and we had no eternal inheritance, no promise of a changed life, only on the outside looking in. Do you remember? Do you remember? Now, I don't know about you, but hearing things like, will not inherit the kingdom of God, I think sometimes we have trouble remembering I 
I think also in this room, us, it's important for us to ask ourselves the question, do we really believe that because of God's holiness and perfection and because of our sinfulness and the evil inside us that we were once separated from God for eternity? And do we believe that that is a reality for those outside of this room? Now, while we should remember that we were an enemy of God, we must also remember that now we're changed. Scripture teaches us that we are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Romans 5 teaches us that we were utterly helpless, but the rest of Romans teaches us that we have a future and a hope. And so while the past seems bleak, we have reason to celebrate because God has not left us in the place that we were in. And it's important for us to see that because if we come back to Titus chapter 3, we see in verse 4 this little bitty word at the beginning. And in some layouts of your Bible, you will actually see this word separated from the rest of the paragraph that follows because translators thought it was important for you to understand this word is crucial for us as followers of Christ. The Bible that we have available here at Brookwood has this giant line right after the word but, longer than the word itself to remind us, don't go too fast. You were helpless, you were an enemy of God, full of evil and dishonesty and disobedience and slaves to your own pleasures and lust, but you had no hope, no future, completely separate from God, destined for eternal punishment because of my sin, your sin, but so before we move into what the but really is about, let me just ask you this question. Have you experienced this moving from death to life? Can you truly say that this is what was in the past? Has Christ changed you? Has he birthed you anew? Just for a moment, before we move too quickly, I want to just get us to pause and say, God, thank you that you did not just leave us at verse 3, but you get us to verse 4. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. Another way that I can grow in my devotion to God is by receiving God's love. Receiving God's love. Verse 4, but when, our, when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth, a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, because 
of his grace. He declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This small section of scripture is the explanation of the gospel. Verses 3 through 7 in Titus chapter 3 is the picture of what God has done in our life. We get to look into the beauty of the gospel that Paul has laid out for us, for Titus's friend. Now, Paul doesn't just describe what happens. He describes every member of the Trinity's role in salvation. First, he describes the goodness and kindness of God the Father. In verse 4, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, which means this, if you have to reveal something, it means that it used to be what? Hidden, not revealed, maybe placed away. But the reality is, is this, some of us have been in the place where God's love has been on display. It may have been even communicated to us in words, shown to us through good deeds. But until God reveals to us his goodness and kindness, it is hidden. Which means if I'm a follower of Christ trying to share the love of Christ with someone, I am waiting and praying and watching to see, is God doing something with what I'm praying, talking about, sharing, offering to this person? And I'm asking God, reveal who you are to this person over and over again. So it, it's hidden. You know, if you were to look at the Greek word here, it's kind of like the phrase, well, you'll be able to see this person's true colors. This person's actions reveal who they truly are, which means this, God's actions reveal who he truly is, always. But our perspective on who God is, we may not be able to see it which means the hard things, the difficult things that have happened in our life, even when we look at our past, as someone who's been revealed the kindness and goodness of God, we can look back and go, I see what God was doing the entire path of my life. But if that's not been revealed to us, we can see God as harsh and unloving. We can see him as holding us at arm's length. But we ask God, God, reveal yourself to us and we will see him as he truly is. And please don't miss, just read back over verse three and then compare that to the goodness and kindness of God. Now, I don't know about you, you just got done giving Christmas presents. You guys are probably holier than me. But when you think about presents, sometimes you think about, well, you know, how good is our relationship with this particular person? I mean, is this like a, is this like a $10 kind of relationship? Is this kind of like a, maybe a $25 kind of, like what, what is this? If you were to read verse 3 and think about what Christmas present would I be giving to this person? 
And then ask yourself, would you sacrifice a member of your own family for this person? That is God's love. And you are that person in verse 3. And he doesn't just love you a little bit. He lavishes love on you. So much so, and maybe you've had a grandma or an aunt or maybe even your own parents where you're like, come on, this is enough love. Give me a break. Give me some space. God overwhelms us with his love for us because he knows us truly. Those deep, dark things that you would never reveal to any human being, God knows them all and lavishes love on you. Do not miss the goodness and kindness of God in comparison to the evil and the sin that's present in you. God loves us. God saves us because of his mercy, not because of the good that we've done. We did not earn it. We should not take pride in it. And according to verse 3, we couldn't have earned it. We have nothing good in us. God's mercy seems so crazy when you look at verse 3. You've got to be thinking, if this were a friend, you would be sharing with them, hey, maybe like pull it back a little bit. This person is crazy. Maybe you shouldn't do all the things that you're doing. Maybe this person is taking up too much of your time. They offer you nothing in return. And God says, I know. I want to offer them everything. That is the love that God has for us. Secondly, Paul shows us that regeneration and renewal only come by the Holy Spirit. Second part of verse 5. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase, new birth, it just means something that you've heard Perry say a number of times, just called regeneration. It's a scriptural truth that in order to be right with God, we must be born again because verse 3 is true. We have no spiritual life in us apart from God giving us spiritual life. And that life comes through the Holy Spirit. Only God can regenerate us. We cannot live the good life unless our status from verse 3 has been changed. And regeneration is that change. And because we are regenerated, we get a new life. We don't just get a new lease on life. We get new life entirely. We don't just get a new name. We get new things and blessings. We get new desires and hopes and dreams. Everything is new. Everything is new. 
the Spirit moves us from hopeless citizens of this planet to a fully alive citizen of heaven. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, But God, being so rich in mercy, loving us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins and trespasses, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. God, through the Spirit, births us anew to be fit for heaven. This birth comes through faith. That faith is a gift given to us by God, made real in our lives by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 5, says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. As one author puts it, We don't need renovation. We don't need reformation or reorganization. We need to be reborn. Now, you can check out what this regeneration looks like, all the scriptural truth involved, the depth, by checking out a couple books that I'd recommend to you. Finally, Alive by John Piper talks specifically about the moment of regeneration and how God works that out. You could also read maybe a more academic version of that called Making Sense of Salvation by Wayne Grudem. Both of those resources are excellent ways to learn what is truly true about you because of the new birth. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, makes these things reality. They make them from what is on the page to what is happening in us. When we just sing that the life of Jesus is in our veins, it is only in our veins because the Holy Spirit makes it be in our veins. Just as Perry taught us in the Christmas series that the baby that was placed in the womb was put there by the Holy Spirit. Our new birth happens by the same Holy Spirit that placed Jesus in there miraculously. And this Spirit gives us life. John 6, 63, the Spirit gives life. And then third, Paul shows us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because God loves us, He sent His Son, Jesus, and because Jesus lived His life obediently and perfectly and sacrificially on our behalf, He died for our sins on the cross. He was raised from the, new dead, from the dead, showing us that God accepts His sacrifice, showing us that it is good, showing us that it is finished, And then the Holy Spirit is able to do his work because Jesus did his work. Because all three members of the Trinity are working together in our salvation, we experience the goodness of God. You want to grow in your prayer life? Here's one thing you can do this next year to grow in your prayer life. Pray to God the Father for his love and kindness. Pray to the Holy Spirit about what he makes reality in your life. Pray to Jesus the Son and thank him for his life and example for you. Jesus, through living his life acceptably before God as a human being and as God, died on the cross for our sins in our place. He took the punishment. He took the penalty. He took the weight. He took the burden. He took the guilt and the shame. And it all died with him. All of it. It 
is finished. Verse 7, because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. When we place our faith in Christ and what he did, the Spirit gives us new life. He didn't just make us right with God. He gave us confidence to talk with God. He gave us confidence to ask God to grow our relationship with him. We can live in full assurance that we are right in God's sight because of Jesus Christ. How can I be sure, JC? How can I know for certain that I'm good in God's sight? One, realize that we've got everything we need for salvation given to us by God and that when we read his word, that is the number one tool for us in our assurance that we can remember because God has given us a tool to remember and we can ask, Holy Spirit, have you done this in my life? Another way that we can grow in our devotion with God is by rejoicing in my standing with God. Rejoicing in my standing with God. Verse 7, because of his grace, he declared us righteous and he gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Our devotion to God grows our understanding of who we truly are in Christ. Jesus' righteousness is enough for us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus' righteousness, what he accomplished on the cross through his resurrection has changed everything for you. Do you believe that? Then that should make you feel good. It should make you rejoice. It should make you wake up with a glimmer in your eye. It can get you through your work day. It can get you through hard conversations because you know my salvation is taken care of because of Christ. I am a citizen of heaven, living on this planet. And one day, as we sing about, the king will return for his own. So what are some ways that we can rejoice? Well, on the bottom of your outline, I gave you a couple things to just think about. I want you to think about these things. As you reflect on what God has done in your life, What are some steps you're going to take? Now, here's the thing. We get into resolutions and we make goals, and goals are great. But let me give you a little secret. I don't know. I've never met a football coach whose goal was to win less games than the other football coaches. I would hope, and I'm sure some of you have made this argument about your very own football coach, but I would hope every football coach wants to win a championship, and they all have the same goal, all of them. So it's not the goals that really make a difference because they all have the same ones. I want you to think about what are some practices that you can do in your life to help you grow in connection and relationship with God. And I just separated them into schedule. That way you can schedule it and do it on a regular basis. What are some daily things? Here's some suggestions just to think, think about. Read your Bible every day. Pray every day. I know people that write the Bible down for an entire year. They do that because it helps them remember, and they may be a little bit like me in that they have a tendency to go fast. So writing it down slows them down so that they can focus on the words. For some of you, you just need a few minutes 
of solitude and silence by yourself with God. Scripture memorization to remember the things of God that have been revealed to you. Weekly, come to church. You know, it's amazing when I get here to sing what it does to my spirit. Even hearing you guys sing back there today. That God truly is the God of this city. Even though we may have things in our eyes that distract us from the fact that God is in control, He is the God of this city. So attend church. Worship as a family at dinner time. Practice Sabbath. Practice giving. Maybe take a walk outside to experience God's glory and creation. Maybe do a whole day without your smartphone. Maybe join a small group and participate. Every month, take a day alone with God. Maybe as you reflect on the past month, do so in praise and worship of God and repentance and confession of your sin. You could also plan the month ahead with the Spirit as your guide. So take a moment to write these things down, and today we're going to practice. In fact, we're going to practice rejoicing in our salvation through something that's been around for a long time, a practice that the church specifically is to be involved in, and it's called the Lord's Supper. Now, if you don't have the elements, you didn't receive them at the door, if you just kindly lift your hand up. Now, listen, I know what time it is. I know that, I know that you guys have plenty of things to do. But I would just ask you, I would just ask you to take this moment, take it serious, it's not really what I want to say, but ultimately that's, that's what I think our vernacular gives us. Be intentional with this moment with God. Now, this is a practice for those of us who have been reborn into the family of God. This is our practice. This is a symbol of what is true for believers in Jesus. It's a symbol that Christ's body was sacrificed and broken for us. And it's a symbol that Christ's blood was shed for our sins and that our sins are forgiven because He shed His blood. Before we take the elements, and I'll lead us through, because I know some people need the instructions, let's take a moment to reflect on Jesus' broken body and His shed blood. And I just want you to spend a moment, connect with God, Ask him where you stand with him today. If he reveals anything to you that you need to take care of, my encouragement based on the word of God is to take care of that first. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to the earth for us. Jesus, we thank you for living your life as a sacrifice for us. Ultimately, sacrificing your life 
and your body on our behalf. Shedding your blood so that our sins might be forgiven. Holy Spirit, thank you that these things are reality to us because of your work. Thank you for loving us, encouraging us, reminding us, building us up in the love of God. We are thankful to remember what you've done for us today. Thank you, God. All God's people said, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, 24 says this. You guys can take out your bread. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. You can take out your cup. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. Scripture says, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. God, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've birthed us anew, but come take your children back with you. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we're able to pray these things. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 in order to get in contact with our Connections team. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.